about, I think it was like 10 or 11 years ago, Shari decided she wanted a pet. And so we ended up rescuing a wiener dog, a little miniature dog. She was like eight pounds. And she was a rescue. And I don't know how this happened. It's kind of embarrassing to admit. But somehow the dog ended up sleeping in her bed. And uh, wouldn't sleep in her crate, wouldn't sleep. She like would bark all night. And so we were weak. We fell to temptation. And we allowed um, the dog to sleep in our bed. And every morning, I'd wake up to this doctrine's face on my pillow. And instead of sleeping up in a little ball or a little you know, circle like a lot of dogs do, um, she would stretch out in between Shari and I like she was a human. And she would have her feet you know, out and have her head. And it didn't matter if we put her in the bed with her head at the foot of the bed. She would always end up with her head on either my pillow or Shari's pillow. And we always thought, that's kind of it's weird, but it's kind of cute. She thinks she's a human. And this dog, you know, thought she was a human. And I heard a, another story. I thought we were crazy until I heard this other story of a, another family that had a beloved family pet. And um, instead of a wiener dog, it was a snake. And they would do the same thing. They would bring the snake into their bed. Yes, Shelby, that is the face you should make when you hear about bringing a snake into your bed. And this family, for God knows, what were you, I have no idea. They loved the snake. Just side note, you should not. If you have a pet snake, like, no, that's not a good idea. So they loved this snake, and, um, and they would let this snake sleep in their bed. It, and uh, eventually, the snake started to um, do what our little wiener dog did, which was like sleep in a straight line next to the people with their, their, their this little dumb snake head on the pillow. And, um, and this family thought it was the cutest thing. And then the worst case scenario happened. Uh, the snake got sick. Snake wouldn't eat. It's little snake food that you feed dumb snakes. And you can tell, <laughs> do not give me a snake as a gift. And, um, and, uh, they, they were just brokenhearted, like they did not want to lose. I, I don't know the snake's name, but in my head, the snake's name is Mr. Snakes, you know, because why, why not? Name, name, name. If, you're, if you're crazy enough to have a snake, you're crazy enough to name it a crazy name like Mr. Snakes. So they finally take Mr. Snakes to the vet, and they're like the whole family there, it's a circus, it's a big ordeal. They're brokenhearted, they're crying, they've got tissues, and they, they finally go see the vet, and they're like, you have to help us you know, save Mr. Snakes. You know, he won't eat. And, uh, and there's no way. Like, we can't imagine the future without Mr. Snakes. This vet is like, well, I've met some crazy people, but here it is. And so he does all, they do all this blood work on this snake. They try to figure out everything that's wrong with the snake. And he can't. The vet has no solution for why Mr. Snakes is sick and why Mr. Snakes won't eat. And he tells them, he's like, you're going to have to get a second opinion. I have no clue why Mr. Snakes is sick. He's probably going to die. You should probably come to terms with it. And the family breaks down. It's crying. And finally, like, the mom gathers it together. She comes forward as the spokesperson. And she's like, sir, you have to figure out what's wrong with Mr. Snakes. Like, like we can't bear the heartache if Mr. Snakes dies. You've, you've got to figure out like what little Mr. Snakes prescription we need to give him for him. You know? And she says, you know, we love him so much. He like sleeps in our bed and he does the cutest thing. He like, instead of sleeping in a coil, he sleeps in a straight line right next to us and he puts his little snake head on our pillow and it's the cutest thing. And, and he thinks he's a human. Like Mr. Snakes is a part of our family. He sleeps in our bed and he thinks he's a human. 
And as she tells the vet that, his eyes get really big. And he says, ma'am, you're crazy. <laughs> and she's like, what are you talking about? And um, the vet says, I know what's wrong with Mr. Snakes. He's not sick. She's like, really? He's not sick? He's like, yeah. Um, Mr. Snakes is starving himself. And uh, that cute little thing where he's like laying in a straight line that snakes don't do, he's measuring you. And he's not eating because he's preparing to eat you. And, and you think Mr. Snakes is all you know, cuddly and you think she's part of the family, but Mr. Snakes has a different plan. And he's working up the appetite and he's measuring you to see how big he needs to get for him to eat you. And you have a choice. You can either sell Mr. Snakes or you can keep sleeping with Mr. Snakes and eventually die. And uh, true story. That's, that's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's that, it's, it, those are, that's clear cut. Those are the those are two options. So uh, you will never forget Mr. Snakes, I guarantee you. What a story. Uh, Mr. Snakes reminds me of lo- a lot of our relationship with unforgiveness. Oftentimes, um, someone hurts us or someone disappoints us. Or we, we face some tragedy. We face abuse. Uh, someone lets us down. Somebody either realistically sins against us or sometimes it's just a product of our imagination. We sometimes read into people's motives and, and someone didn't actually hurt us, but we believe they've hurt us. And, but Regardless of the stakes, when we have trouble, and and ultimately when we just can't or refuse to forgive people, it is like getting in bed with Mr. Snakes. Someone once said, um, unforgiveness and holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking a bottle of poison, sitting down and waiting for the other person to drop dead. You're the one that drops dead because that's how unforgiveness works. So we're, um, we're going to finish the Joseph story today, and, and what I want you to see is, what does Joseph do with Mr. Snakes? Does, when Joseph finally comes to terms with his brothers who sold him into slavery decades earlier, does Joseph harbor and cuddle up with the snake of unforgiveness? Or does he list the snake on Craigslist and get rid of it? And at the end of it, I would like for you to answer that same question, is what do you do when life hurts you, when people hurt you? Do you sell Mr. Snakes, or do you cuddle up with Mr. Snakes? Do you, do you refuse to hold on to unforgiveness, or do you walk freely into forgiveness? We've been, um, kind of the tagline to Joseph has been, where's God when life hurts? And we'll see today exactly where God was. God was with Joseph all along. God was with Joseph in the pit. God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. God was with Joseph in prison. God was with Joseph in the palace. And we see this theme as even though Joseph goes through this incredible heartache uh, caused at the hands of his family, God's with him. I want to close our series with asking a different question. Instead of asking, where's God when life hurts? I want to ask you, and I want you to ask yourself, what do you do when life hurts? When people let you down, when people sin against you, when people hurt you, what do you do? Do you hold on to it and, and, and create a beloved pet? Or do you do as we'll see Joseph do, which is he opens his hands and he opens his heart to God and he allows confession and repentance and restoration and redemption to happen. If you've got a Bible, let's go to uh, Genesis 42. 
Oh, we've got to go through chapter 42, 43, 44, all the way to 50 today. I hope you had a big breakfast. We're going to be here quite a while. I'm kidding. You're like nervous laughter. I'm going to try to paraphrase most of it. There's a couple of chapters. I'm just going to highlight a few verses that I want you to see. If you're jumping in with us, I want to briefly just tell you the Joseph story. Joseph is uh, the, young, uh, the second youngest of 12 brothers. Um, and Jacob, his dad, has uh, 12 sons with four wives, probably not a great idea. And Joseph, uh, or Jacob, sees Joseph's mom and Benjamin's mom as his real wife. And instead of giving the, the coat of many colors to his oldest son, who is Reuben, um, I think it's Reuben, is it Reuben? Yep, Reuben. He gives it to the oldest son of his fourth wife, who is Joseph. And by doing that, what he is saying to all the other 10 brothers is that their mom wasn't legitimate. So if you're wondering, why did Joseph's brothers try to kill him and sell him into slavery because he got a coat? It wasn't because they were jealous of his Patagonia jacket. It was because daddy was saying, I don't actually love your mother. I love Rachel. And he considers Joseph to be the oldest, the, the, the firstborn, and he considers Benjamin to be his baby. And so that's why we got into the situation. Uh, Joseph has this pair of dreams. One of the dreams is that the sun and moon and 11 stars, mom and dad and the 11 brothers, all bow down to him. You'll see that dream fulfilled several times um, in our text today. And he's, um, he's smart and he's really handsome and he's good looking, but he's not very wise. And he shows up and he tells his brothers this dream and they hate him even more. And at the age of 17, they see Joseph coming to um, kind of report on them, and they decide they're going to kill him. And so they jump Joseph, they throw him into an empty well or cistern, a pit, and their plan is to kill him. Reuben, who's the oldest brother, has a secret plan to save Joseph, and he kind of, we're guessing he thinks if he saves Joseph, maybe that can get him back into good graces with Jacob, and he can at least be on par with the firstborn. Um, and so while, Joseph, while Reuben goes away, Judah, another brother, steps forward and says, hey, instead of killing him, how about we sell him to these slave traders and at least make some money? And so that's what they do. And, and then when Reuben comes back, he sees Joseph's gone and he's really upset. And Joseph has been sold into slavery for a bag of silver. Very important detail because that's going to come up later. Joseph eventually goes through a series of heartaches and ends up uh, as a Hebrew in Egypt and gets promoted to be the prime minister. We looked at last week how, how Pharaoh pulled him out of prison and told him his dream, and Joseph interpreted his dream and said, hey, what if we do this? Um, and, uh, and Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in the world. Egypt is the superpower in the day. And uh, he's basically the, the vice president or the, or the governor or the prime minister of Egypt, Right? And so it's the credible story of this really kind of an immigrant who's a slave who gets promoted to vice president. I mean, imagine that happening in America today. It wouldn't happen, but it happened in Egypt. And so that's Joseph. And a famine happens in the land. And part of Joseph's plan was seven years, we're going to have an awesome harvest. Let's save, let's Dave Ramsey this thing, and let's save a bunch of grain. And in the next seven years, uh, whenever there's a famine, we'll have food to live on and food to sell. Well, that happens, okay? So in f uh, chapter 42 is where we pick up, and we see a glimpse um, of Joseph's, uh, of Jacob's household. Um, 
I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to pull out some things and you can look at it. In, first, in verse 1, um, basically the brothers are doing nothing. They're lazy. And Jacob looks at them and says the equivalent of, why are you just looking at each other watching Netflix? Go get us some food. And so Jacob um, sends the brothers out into a foreign land to provide for them. Very similar to what he did at the beginning of the story. He sent their brothers out to Shechem to work to provide for the family. And he does a similar thing here. But this time, he will not send Benjamin, um, his favorite, right? Uh, Joseph's younger brother, who is the, the only other son from Rachel, his beloved wife. He, and he's grown suspicious of the, of the brothers. And so he won't send them Benjamin. And that's a very important detail. Jacob, will not, uh, Jacob won't let Benjamin... I call him Benji, out of his sight, okay? And so the brothers are forced, because of God's sovereign hand, to go to Egypt to find grain. What they don't know is that it's the brother they sold into slavery who has engineered this grand plan to, um, to, to be able to provide for many people, which is really Joseph, if you know Abraham's call, God called Abraham to be a blessing to many different people and to many different nations. Joseph is fulfilling his great-great-great-grandfather's call, which is to be a blessing to many nations. Really cool. That's for you nerds. Okay, now verse 6. This is great. Look at this. Verse 6, chapter 42. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and here's part, the dream partially fulfilled. And they bowed themselves, they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, and he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. He starts to play bad cop. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, and they did not recognize him. So notice there's an information gap. Joseph's probably clean-shaven and looks like an Egyptian. They're Hebrew, like shepherds probably, and they probably got a beard that would rival most hipsters today. And they, they don't recognize that that's their brother, but he recognizes them, and he can tell, he knows their language, and um, he can hear them talk, and they don't know that he can eavesdrop in on them. Verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that, had, had, that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you're spies, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have gone to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men, which is not true. Your servants have never been spies. Okay, and so I want to just paraphrase the rest of this. Um, so, so Joseph comes to terms after, you know, 20-something years. The very people that tried to kill him, the very people who, tried to sell him in the, who did sell him into slavery to a foreign land are now in front of him and they need him. And this is the part where we say, what does Joseph do with Mr. Snakes? How does Joseph react? Is he choosing forgiveness or does he choose to be bitter? And he's the most important person person besides Pharaoh in the world, he could easily just snap his fingers and they'd be done with and he could say, I told you so. But Joseph doesn't do that. He engineers a series of three tests. And I want to encourage you, if you've never read this, uh, read chapter 42 to 50 and like the action is incredible. The drama is just, you know, you're just turning a page wondering what's going to happen. But uh, Joseph, it's very important that Joseph finds out some information. First of all, he doesn't know that Reuben had a plan to save him. And we're going to look at what he finds out and how, and just notice how Joseph responds when he hears Reuben talk. He also um, needs to settle the issue with Judah, who is the one who came forward. So you're going to see Judah. Um, He doesn't know if if Jacob died or not. All these years, he's probably wondering, why hasn't dad come and found me? I'm his favorite. 
Um, but, but also, this is often missed, he doesn't know if they did the same thing to Benji. And if you're Joseph, and if you're thinking, well, they killed me because Jacob is favoring our mo- my mother, why wouldn't they do the same thing with Benjamin? And so Joseph has to find out if Benjamin's alive, if Jacob's alive, where Judah's heart is and where Reuben's heart is. And that's kind of all these chapters. So to do this, he engineers this test, and he, he, he basically um, arrests all of them and says, I'm going to keep all of you, and you've told me about this brother that you've got. They said, we have this brother who's not here, and he knows it's Benjamin, but he wants to find out, have you killed Benjamin? He's not ready to forgive yet. And so he has to see Benjamin. So he says, I'm going I'm to confine all of you, kind of like what you did to me, but one of you is going to have to go back home and bring Benjamin here. And if you bring this brother, I'll know you're telling the truth, that you're not spies, because I don't believe you. Well, they, the, the brothers have a problem, because Jacob won't let Benji out of, out of his sight, because he doesn't trust them for good reason. So after three days, Joseph flips it, and he goes, here's the deal. I'm going to send all of you, but I'm going to keep one back. And you're like, why does, Jake, why does Joseph do that? I've always wondered, why does Joseph flip the script on him and say, I'm going to send all of you, but keep one back? Um, but he does, and he has their, their sacks filled with grain, and then, without them knowing it, he has his servants secretly refund their money to them. And so he puts the silver that they brought to buy the grain back in their sacks. They don't know it. And he sends them on the journey. He keeps Simeon as kind of hostage, and their job is, if they want to get uh, their brother back, they have to bring Benjamin. But just in case, they say, we're going um, to give up, we're going to sacrifice Simeon, because we did that with Joseph, he put the money in their sacks so that they would be forced to come back because if they tried to come back for food again later without, you know, they, you stole the grain and Egypt would just, you know, put them in the fishes in the Nile. So this is fascinating because remember, the story began with, with Jacob sending the boys into a foreign field to provide for them. And when they returned, they returned a brother down with an incredible story and a flush of cash that they couldn't account for. And Joseph engineers the same. They show up to Jacob once again from a foreign land trying to provide for the family, missing another brother with this incredible story of what happened to them. And then when they open their sacks, there's all this money that they can't honestly tell Jacob where it came from. It's like fascinating that that Joseph was able to pull this off. So they show up and they realize we have to go back and we have to bring Benjamin back, and we've got to bring this money back. And they go back and forth, and finally they talk Jacob into doing it. And Jacob says, here, take the original money, take more money, bring gifts, bring Benjamin. And if you don't come back with Benjamin, I'm as good as dead. And so they show back up to, um, to Joseph. So this is chapter 43, all right? So I just want to show you. We'll, we'll throw it on the screen. You don't have to, to, um, to look there. Um, uh, at the beginning of 43, um, Joseph brings them to, their, to his house. They bow down, another fulfillment of the dream. Um, and Joseph has a, a chance to pounce them. He doesn't. He asks about their welfare. He's like, how are you doing? He asks about Jacob. And then um, they bow down for a third time, and then he sees Benjamin. I want you to see this. Um, And then he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. 
Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. And then he washed his face and came out controlling himself. You see, like, like Joseph realizes, okay, like, they kept Benjamin alive. This is, this is his boy. This is his only full brother. And Joseph, all these years later, I mean, two decades later, he's not bitter. He's not numb. He's very emotional to the point where the guy who's in charge has to go and hide himself while he weeps and gets himself together. And then this is fascinating. He brings them in, and he has a banquet with them. And, um, you know, they can't, the Egyptians and the, the Hebrews can't sit together. And so the other translations, this translation says um, they sat before him, but other translations say that Joseph was the one who told them where to sit. And he sat them in order of their um, birthright, according to the youngest, according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. And they're like, how did he know the order of our birth? They don't get it, right? And then uh, portions were taken from his table, and he gives Benji five times as much as any of them else. And still they're in amazement. Like, and they don't, like, this is kind of like Joseph Hinn saying, hey, I know your birth order, and I know that Benjamin's the favorite. And they still, they're clueless. They have no clue. But one of the cool things about this is Joseph, I think, um, his dad got all this, like all this happened because dad got the birthright and the birth order wrong. And here's Joseph trying to make it right. And he's saying, I'm going to put Reuben as the first, not Benjamin. It's pretty incredible how he does that. So um, if we go to chapter 44, um, he, he um, did I have a great dinner? He fills their sacks, and he sends them off on their way, and they think the story's over. But before they know it, uh, Joseph has their money refunded again, but then he takes his silver cup, and he has it secretly placed in Benjamin's bag. And to, um, to be caught with your host silver cup in the east would be like going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and stealing her china. Like, you just... Like, it's very disrespectful, disarming, you don't do it. And so Joseph arranges for it to look like that. They don't know it. They go on their way, and shortly after they've left, Joseph sends the cops after them, and they see the proverbial Egyptian headlights flashing in the rearview mirror. They pull over, and they, they're accused of stealing Joseph's cup. And they're like, they cry innocence, and they say, if you find the cup, we'll be your slave. And they go through all the bags, and the cup's not there. Then they get to Benjamin's bag. They find the cup. And the brothers tear their clothes because they promised Jacob they'd bring Benjamin back. They thought they were out of the woods. And here the cup is in Benjamin's bag. Now they got to go back to Egypt. And this, the story keeps getting worse. Um, so they arrive. Let's look at chapter 44, verse 14. They arrive in Joseph's house. They all fall before him to the ground. Another time that this dream that Joseph had was fulfilled. And he says, what deed is this you have done? Now this is incredible. This is so key for Joseph. Judah, I underlined it here. Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak of? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. He, he's talking about God has found out the guilt of them selling Joseph in this, into slavery. It's so important. It's interesting that it's not Reuben who steps forward, but it's Judah. And Joseph knows who's the brother who sold them. And what Joseph hears is the very brother who sinned against him confesses his sin. He doesn't, and Judah doesn't know this is Joseph, but he says, God has found out our guilt. And then he says, both we and he, speaking of Benjamin, will be your servants. 
And, and uh, <laughs> Joseph says, far be it from me, only the man in whose hand the cup was found should be my servant, which is Benjamin. But as for you, go to peace to your father. Then the courage, then Judah went up to him again. And I'll save you the details, but at the very end of this chapter, 44, Judah says, take me instead of Benjamin. Benjamin's guilt, Benjamin's innocent. I'm the one who's guilty. Take me and let all of them go. Let Benjamin go. I'll be your slave. And what Joseph hears is first, he hears Judah confessing, but then he hears Judah walking in, uh, um, he, he hears Judah walking in repentance. And he says, I sold my brother into slavery to Egypt. Take me as a slave to Egypt. I'll, I'll make it right. It's incredible. It's just actually a, also a foreshadowing of Jesus, that Jesus would step forward and, 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 um, and take, um, you know, take our place on the cross. Very, very incredible. Now, let's go to um, chapter 45. And this is like the high point of Joseph's story. Okay? So Joseph has seen, and I, I skipped over it, but in the story, he hears, ben, hears Reuben say, we shouldn't have done this. So he learns that big brother was going to protect him. He hears that Jacob's still alive, but is brokenhearted. He sees that Benjamin is still alive. And he sees that Judah admits they should have never done this and that Judah's willing to pay for it. Okay. Joseph in chapter 45, it says he could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. All this time, they didn't know it was him. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. I mean, look at the tenderness that is in this man after two decades of being um, falsely accused and sold into slavery. He wants to be near to his brothers. They came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And look at his concern for them. He says, do not be dis distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Where's God when life hurts? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five more years. God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It's an incredible moment in Joseph's life because we see Joseph is refusing to get in bed with Mr. Snakes with unforgiveness. And he is completely throwing unforgiveness and bitterness. And every, legitimately claim, every legitimate claim he has over his brothers, he throws out the window and he says, come near to me. Let me weep on you. Let me welcome you in. God was in this. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, he'll say in chapter 50. Is there more? Is there another slide here? Yeah. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all of his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. The rest of the story is Pharaoh says, bring your whole family here. I'm going to give them the best. And he set them up with the best land, the best provisions. And they bring Jacob and they, they bring their whole family over to Egypt. And then at the end of the story, Jacob dies and all the brothers don't think any of this is real. And in chapter 50, the brothers get nervous and they say, is he going to kill us now that, 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 that dad's dead? And, and Joseph is fully forgiven. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's the end of Joseph's story. 
What I love about Joseph is it's a story that's all about the F word. It's a story about forgiveness. Joseph probably has suffered more anguish and suffering than any of us. And I know many of the stories in this room and many of the stories of people who listen online, and they're, they're awful stories or tragic stories. But Joseph has been through the ringer. We've looked at that for the last six weeks. And at the end of this time, he comes and he says, what, what you meant for evil or what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. And Joseph has come to terms with everything and his heart is full of brokenness and humility and love for other people. And he wants his brothers to not be angry with themselves. And he wants his brothers to receive forgiveness and he wants to provide for his family and he wants to actually be a good leader out of love for his family. He had every chance to pounce and to say, I told you so. But he chose love and he chose forgiveness. The greatest definition that I've ever heard of forgiveness is the relaxation of a legitimate claim. Many people think forgiveness is forgetting or looking past or being a doormat. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you have a legitimate claim on somebody and you choose to open your hand and let it go and relax a claim you have on somebody. That's, of course, what God does for us through Jesus. Is there, we, have, we have actually sinned against God and, and God has a legitimate beef and claim with us because of the love and the grace that Jesus poured out on the cross. He can open that and bring forgiveness to us. When, when, uh, when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, well, most of us probably know the Lord's Prayer. The only part of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus double-backed on and gave commentary, like there's tons of commentary on the Lord's Prayer, but Jesus gave commentary on one line, and it was the line of forgiveness. Where it, where it says, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus had some thoughts on it just so that we would know how he feels about that. It's one reason why we have a confession time and a passing of the peace time in our worship is that it's so crucial is that we receive forgiveness from God vertically, but we also are people who walk in giving forgiveness horizontally. If you're stuck in life, if you feel like you're on cruise control, if you're wrestling with doubt, if, you're, um, if you feel like maybe God's not speaking to you, um, you can't get the breakthrough, there could be many reasons for that. But I wonder if you'd consider that maybe one of those reasons or one of those kinks in the hose is unforgiveness. We have, there's tons of hurt in this room. There's tons of people who have sinned against you. There's people who have sinned against one another in this room. You have sinned against people. If you're not hurt and wounded in some way, you're not breathing. That's why our, one of our, our motto is, it's okay to not be okay, just don't lie about it. Right? Um, but unforgiveness is one of those chief areas in our life that acts as a block to what God wants to do. God has good plans and he has a good purpose for you. But when we uh, hold on to sin or when we hold on to unforgiveness and other things, it puts a kink in the hose. You know, the water pressure is on. God's blessing and his love is coming toward you, but we, we, we choose to put a kink in and only a little bit comes out the other end. About, um, man, a long time ago, I was grossly sinned against and legitimately uh, thrown into a pit and sold into slavery, to use the analogy. Not literally, but figuratively by someone I deeply love and care about, even to this day. And everyone around me knew that something had happened. 
And people would say, Drew, like, you're hurt, you're bitter, um, you're holding on to unforgiveness. And I'd say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. I, I, like, it's not a big deal. And I, I grew up in a church where if you uh, struggled with offense or with forgiving people, that was a sign of immaturity. And I didn't want to be seen as immature. And so um, I was like, I know I'm choosing to not be offended. But then there's some times in life where whether you got a choice in it or not, like you just are. Like sometimes the damage is so severe, you can say you choose to not get hurt, but you just are. And you, there is not a choice. You just are. And a big hurdle in my life was, was just, one, acknowledging that, that someone had sinned against me. Because I didn't want to acknowledge it. I wanted to just brush it under the rug and act like everything was fine. And it was obvious to everybody else that something major had happened to me except for me. And it took me a while. It took me like six months to finally come to this, like, oh, no. This person that I love actually did do something very ungodly to me. And I don't want it to be that way, but it is that way. And, you know, we met and we reconciled. And, I mean, like, many tears were shed. And I forgave and they forgave me. And we talked through it all. But it just wasn't the same. And, and uh, you know, I forgave them many times. And I got to a place where, where I wanted God's best for them. Um, but there was still, there was still pain. Um, about two years ago, I was on a, a hike in Big Bend in the wilderness, and God kept speaking only one word to me. And for the first time in my life, after 35 years, God put a word and a label to the chief wound of my life. And I, and I, I noticed, like, man, the same thing keeps happening to me over and over and over again, from, from my family to work to all Like, I, just, I keep experiencing the same situation and uh, on a hike in Big Ben, on, on the way to the window trail, if you've ever been there, the Lord gave me, he's put a label on it. And it was so intense that I would just cry. I'd be like walking with all these other dudes, and I would just be like trying to hold, hold it together. And I'm not a crier, but I would just like, and even at the thought of the word, if I read the word, if someone said the word, if I said just, just the one word would just cause me to act like Joseph and I need to go leave and weep and get myself together. My, uh, my buddy, um, a good friend of mine, Brian, was with me and he was like, hey, Drew, do you need to talk? I was like, yeah. And, and then I would just say the word and then for the next 30 minutes, he just has his arm around me and I'm just crying like a baby in this 45-year-old's arms. And I'm like, this is weird. I'm a 35-year-old man weeping in the arms of this 45-year-old dude because of this one word. Like, this is, that's where God had me two years ago. The word was rejection. It was just throughout my entire life, I've just been rejected over and over and over and over again. And every time it would happen, it would just bring up all the stuff. And it was so, that, that, that part of my heart was just so tender that even saying that word would just paralyze me. And I spent the next year just not being able to get over it. Just like I wanted to get over it, but I just, no matter, I would pray. And, and finally, some friends of mine said, you need, to, you, need to, you need to go to counseling. You need to get some help. And so last May, I went to a place uh, close by here called Christ Healing Center. And I walked in and I said, hey, I'm a pastor. Uh, you don't know me. I don't know you, but I need, I need help. And they said, well, what? And I, and I just said, rejection. And I'm like, okay, come sit down. And it's supposed to be like an hour and a half, five hours later, <laughs> I walked out of the room. Um, it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had in my life. And about halfway through, we're pr- it, was an, it was so amazing. Um, I often help people hear God's voice, and I needed some other people to help me hear God's voice. 
We're yet through halfway through, and one of the ladies says, hey, Drew, is there any, uh, is there any unforgiveness in your life? And I was like, I don't think so. Like, I hate Mr. Snakes. You know, I tell that story all the time. Like, like no, like, I, I want to forgive people, and I freely forgive people, and I know that I need forgiveness from people. And I'm like, okay. And they said, well, let's just pray, and uh, let's just ask if the Lord, you know, what the Lord says. And so we pray, and I said, Jesus, is there any area that I am not fully forgiven somebody? And he brought, to, brought me to this one instance in my life. And I was like, I keep trying to forgive this person. I want to forgive this person, but I, apparently I can't forgive this person. And so we go through this thing, and the lady says, Drew, have you ever allowed Jesus to pay the debt that this person owes you? And I said, what? <laughs> she goes, let's pray. <laughs> and long story short, whenever uh, me and this person would get together, I was trying to pay for their debt because I loved them. And I would make excuses for them, and I would make reasons for them, and I would give them the benefit of the doubt. And I, but the reality was, I didn't have the bank account to write the check for their forgiveness. It, it, the, the pain and the, the, the transgression was so severe, they didn't have the capital to pay for it, and I didn't have the capital. And even though I had been forgiving and trying to forgive them all these years, the reality was, I had yet to look to the cross. And they led me through this uh, series of exercises and prayers where for the first time in my life, uh, embarrassing, I'm a pastor, I allowed Jesus to pay the debt of somebody else that they owed me. And I was able to do what I wanted to do all along, which was open my hand and let it go. That was last May. Our church has experienced so much growth in depth and in breadth in the last... Uh, last year, and um, I can go back to May. And I, I believe it was when I allowed forgiveness to fully come into my life. And I wanted it. I just didn't know how to do it. Um, everything in our church changed. Well, one of the um, things that I felt the Lord say was, um, because, I, because I gave this to Jesus, I was surprised that I heard Jesus say, um, I'm going to give you four gifts. And um, one of the gifts was he was going to give me um, an increase in friends and partners. And right after that, God brought Tiff. And right after that, God brought Jake. And who are, I mean, God brought other people as well, but like right in, in, in that season, I was like, I think it was like the next week, brought two people that make me laugh like I never laugh and who I can share anything with and are incredible ministry partners. I believe it was because I sold Mr. Snakes and I gave it up. And the Lord richly blessed my heart for it, richly blessed our church for it, as richly blessed you for it. I mean, Tiff and Jake are awesome. And everyone's, you know, I'm, I don't, don't want to highlight them above everyone, but just like God has blessed us because of forgiveness when we choose forgiveness. I know we're over time a little bit, but it's Palm Sunday. We can get over it. Where are you hurt? Even as I share my story, are there, are there, is there something in your life that you want to forgive people? 
But maybe you haven't looked to Jesus and maybe you haven't allowed Jesus to pay the debt that that person owes you. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was a kid. Maybe it was a pastor or a church or a ministry. I don't know what it is for you. But I know that as we turn our eyes to Good Friday in the hill of Golgotha and what Christ did on Mount Calvary, Christ gave his life for the sins of the world. And that includes our sins that we commit against God. It also, thank God, includes the sins we commit against one another. It's one of the beautiful things about the church is we have the language to give forgiveness to one another. And I encourage you, don't put the snake in bed with you. Put it on Craigslist. Run it over with your car. Do something with it. But do not, do not drink the poison and wait for the other person to die. If you need help doing that, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray for you after service. Um, it's hard. It's messy. It took Joseph 20 years, but God's in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your kids, and I just give you thanks that your church is a lot like a nursery. It's a, it's a safe place for us to meet with you and meet with one another, and often we are wearing diapers and making a mess and fighting over toys and screaming and crying and hungry and sleepy. And, and often church and community is a paradise. But God, we know that it is a place where you work on us and you grow us. We give you thanks for the great work that you have done this Lenten season. How you have shown us that you are there in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sickness and the suffering and the loss, the broken dreams, the broken hearts, the broken relationships, you're there. Even when we don't see you there, even when we don't feel you or smell you, and even when we doubt your existence, it doesn't change the fact that you are God, Emmanuel, God with us. So we come and we bring all of our hurts we bring the broken relationships. We bring the pain. We bring the times where we felt like we were in a pit or in prison or misunderstood. Christ, only you can heal those places. Lord, as we come and celebrate your suffering on, on Calvary in the form of bread and wine, God, I pray you would lead us to a place where we freely look to you for the strength to forgive our brothers and sisters who have sinned against us. And that we'll look to you for when we sin against our brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come pour out your presence on our hearts in a fresh way. Give us that peace that passes understanding, that just bypasses our ability to make sense of things with our reason. 
God, where there are lifelong wounds, where there is family dysfunction, where there's been ministry malpractice, where there's brokenness in marriage. God, come. Do what you're good at doing. Bring restoration and redemption. Exchange our mourning for dancing. Exchange our our ashes for beauty. Though sorrow may last for the night, God, we know that you bring joy in the morning. Friends, before we rush to the the table, I just want to give you some time now. Let the Spirit of God sink in. He's here and He wants to do a great work in you. Come, Lord Jesus. We open our hands. We want your love.